0: Well, in 2016, around the July 4th holiday, the WWE wrestler John Cena teamed up with a campaign called Love Has No Labels" to create a video talking about patriotism. Uh, and if it wasn't like four and a half minutes long, I would say we should watch it, but it's like four and a half minutes long. And I already preach long enough. But I recommend you look it up. Uh, in it. <laughs> he defines patriotism as love and devotion for one's country. And throughout the video, he calls on the listeners to expand their view of what we mean when we talk about America. Not just the idea, not just the country, but the people. And those people, he explains, are much more diverse than we would think. 51% are female, 54% Latino, 40 million senior, 54 million Latino, 40 million senior citizens, 27 million million disabled, 18 million are Asian, 9 million are LGBT, 10 million are redhead. I don't know why he throws that in, but he does. Three and a half million are Muslim, which he says is three times the number of people who serve in the military. And so Sina's point is that when we talk about our love and devotion for our country, we are also talking about our love and devotion for those people. They are who make up our country. After all, he says, what's more American than the freedom to celebrate what makes us, us? To love America, he includes, is to love all Americans because love has no labels. Isn't that a great feeding in of the campaign slogan? But patriotism is indeed a good thing. Love for country is a good thing. Love means that you celebrate what is great about something, and it also means that you try to hold the object of your love to a higher standard, that you want it to be the best version of itself, even if it means from time to time having to call it out for falling short. But while patriotism is good, there's this cousin of patriotism that has become more prevalent in the country. It's nationalism. And this is a a term that is like patriotism, but is not quite the same. And it's a really tough idea to nail down what we mean by nationalism. And so I did the old school speech thing. I went to dictionary.com, and this is what it says. Nationalism is identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations. So it is, nationalism says not only is our country good, but it is unequivocally better than other countries. And this topic has become a concern for folks in the church because there's something else that has sprung up in recent years. Christian nationalism, which is a term that's been thrown around more often lately. And Christian nationalism essentially says that not only is America better than other countries, but it has been ordained by God, that it has been chosen by God, and that it has a responsibility as a Christian nation to uphold and support Christian values and beliefs. Of course, this idea is made really tricky by the existence of the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights, which states that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion. So you have to wonder, how can the U.S. government uphold Christian belief and have no official religion? But as a minister, this idea is concerning for another reason. You see, the separation of church and state which is how the First Amendment has been interpreted, isn't actually about protecting the state. It actually protects the church, because the wedding of religious belief with government does damage, not just to people who aren't Christian, but it does damage to the church's witness in the world. In fact, what it tends to do is prevent the church from being what it truly is, the presence of the gospel in the world. So let's listen to our scripture today from Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but they doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you to the end of the age. May God bless this reading. I think this is one of the more uh, misunderstood passages in the Bible. We call this the Great Commission, and it serves as a kind of mission statement for modern churches. And for modern Christians, it sounds an awful lot like Jesus is calling us to go forth and convert people to Christianity. And if we follow Jesus' line here, Jesus says convert who? The nations, which could be virtually everybody. It's a pretty all-inclusive statement. But for the early church, this was actually less a call to make everyone a Christian. And it was much more a statement about what Jesus is covenantal presence in the world would be like. So think about it this way. In the Old Testament, we hear about the covenant God makes with Abram. God says, I have chosen you and your ancestors, and you shall be a great people. This is basically how God is choosing to interact with the world through this nation, ancient Israel. They are supposed to follow a certain set of rules, A certain set of values that are not like the nations around them. And they, the nation of Israel, is supposed to be a blessing to the other nations of the world. This is the core of the covenant that God makes with Abram. It is how God is choosing to be present in the world. So in Jesus, there is this new covenant that is made. We hear Jesus say at the Last Supper, I am making a new covenant in my blood. And this new covenant is meant to be added alongside the old covenant. But it it reframes how God is going to interact with the world. In this new covenant, it's not just one nation that is God's presence in creation. It is not just one group of people. Rather, God's presence in the world will, will flow through the body of believers of all nations gathered together in what we now call the church. And actually, they know from early Christians, from the second and third century, that that there was widespread belief that this great commission, make disciples of all nations, that it had actually been fulfilled because Paul had gone out and brought the gospel to the Gentiles, to all nations. It wasn't that the call was to go out and make every single person a believer, but the call was to make sure that the body of believers was made up from people of all nations. It was no longer restricted to one group. And indeed, even today, the church is called to be transnational, made up of folks from every nation. When we celebrate communion, we're not just celebrating with first Christian church, and we're not just celebrating with American Christians, but we are celebrating with Christians in Greece, and Ecuador, and Iraq. And wherever there are Christians, we believe that we are part of one unified body that is greater and beyond any one nation's identity. And so this is where it gets tricky, because if you start letting the Christian identity get wrapped up with one particular nation or over-identified with one particular nation, you start losing the ability to be the church. So this is the thing about the separation of church and state that we don't always think about. It is not simply about protecting the state from the church or protecting non-Christians from too much Christian influence. It actually protects the church Because Jesus didn't come to to choose one nation. He came to establish his church in many nations. There was a theologian in the 20th century, Karl Barth, who wrote about the need for the church to maintain a healthy distance from nation states. For Barth, uh, governments were ordained by God. And they were ordained to uphold justice. That was why... Governments existed. And to the extent that they did that, Bart thought they should be supported. But Bart knew what we all know uh, governments don't always support justice. We can all think of examples of this. They sometimes wander away and they do their own thing. And for Bart, if the church got too close to the government, it would run the risk of associating the work of these nation states with the work of God, it would become synonymous. And therefore, the church would fail at its job. And what is the church's job? To remind the government what it exists for, for justice, for its people. So for Bart, there had to be this healthy separation of church and state. This wasn't just about protecting the government, but about protecting the church. In Bart's writings, they say, seem very theoretical but they really weren't because Bart was a theologian in Germany in the 1930s and in the mid 30s he fled to his home country of Switzerland because of the rise of the Nazi party which targeted certain religious folks who didn't get in line because one of the many many moves that Hitler made when the Nazis were taking power was to try to take over the church and really to take over Christianity the Nazi Party ordered the Protestant churches to change the rules of how their churches worked. It appointed their own leaders and even went as far as to remove portions of the Bible that pointed to Jesus' Jewish roots. And at the time, most people in Germany were Christian and many, if not most, of these Christians supported these changes. They thought the welding of the church and the state would be good for the church. They wanted the church to be backed by a strong nation. But Barth, along with another theologian that more people have probably heard of, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, resisted this attempt to meld the church and the state because they saw it as an infringement on the authority and autonomy of the church. And so they called on Christians to resist the state takeover of the faith. They wrote a document called the Barman Declaration, and they called their movement the Confessing Church. And they called it that because they confessed that there was only one head of the church on earth, Jesus Christ, not the Fuhrer. So for Bart, there was this imperative, essential separation of these two bodies, because maintaining this separation allowed the church to be the church without compromising itself, and it allowed the church to criticize a government that was abusing its power. And really, it did so for patriotic reasons. It wanted Germany to be the best version of itself. Using the language of Sina, of John Sina, it was patriotic, but not nationalistic. So there are actually really good examples of this in American history, too, where the separation of the church and state allows the church to call the state out. So think about slavery. The early government of our country supported slavery. We know this. In the Constitution, it is a reality of our history. And there were Christians who supported it, including with language from the Bible. But there were also Christians who thought it was counter to the gospel, who thought that slavery was a way in which the government was not upholding its mandate from God, that it was not upholding justice. And indeed, the abolition movement was a call delivered from the church to the state, calling the government to be more faithful to its role to uphold justice. What happens when you take the church and the state and you mingle them too much is it it becomes much more difficult for the church to fulfill this role. What the state what the state does when it's seen as a manifestation of God's kingdom on earth can become synonymous with God's will. It's the old if we do it, it can't be bad because we did it. And this is. The danger of Christian nationalism and why it can be so worrying to see signs of Christian nationalism in the U.S. Just a few years ago, we saw this at the U.S. Capitol building on January 6, 2021, when protesters tried to disrupt the counting of the Electoral College. There were these signs Jesus 2020 and Jesus saves. And at the time, I was dismayed by the sights of signs declaring these things because America's not a Christian nation. And I don't just mean that our fathers wanted it to be separate, which is why they enshrined it in the Bill of Rights, but, but I mean that we shouldn't really want it either. Because we, the church, exist to be God's presence in the world. To announce God's preference for kindness and mercy and love and justice. And governments sometimes do a very good job of those things. But there are moments when they don't. And it will be up to the church to remind the powers and principalities why they exist. And under whose authority they fall this is one of the reasons why I really love the John Cena video from earlier in the service, because he makes clear it is okay to express pride and devotion to our country. And in fact, the numbers he lays out about the diversity of this place, about the ways in which we have welcomed folks from different religious backgrounds and different ethnicities, that those things are actually a way in which our country fulfills the Bible's mandate to show love to all. And it's good to celebrate those things. But nationalism, that idea that our country is superior to others, or Christian nationalism, the idea that our country has been chosen by God, is dangerous. Because it demeans the church. By saying that God's presence and voice in the world comes something other, through something other than the body that Christ is called into being, that is a danger to our faith. And So the church must be the church, and the state must be the state. And we, as members of both communities, we should practice healthy patriotism, especially when it celebrates the best parts of our country. But nationalism, that idea that America is called to be an explicit Christian nation, that is a challenge to God's, to Jesus' great commission. Because Jesus has called the church to be a body of people, not just from one nation, but from all of the nations. God has called us to be a faithful presence, announcing the reign of God's kingdom. God has called us to be a check on the abuse of authority, to be a voice for the justice that God has called us all to. So let's practice healthy patriotism, and let's be careful about how close we as a church get to the governing bodies of our world. Amen. We invite you all on this...